Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit. Today, I'm bringing you Grand Rounds. Let's listen in. It's my great, great, great pleasure to introduce uh, this morning's Grand Round speaker, Dr. Amrit Mishra, who is instructor at Boston Adult Congenital Heart Program and staff physician at Boston Children's Hospital and Brigham and Women Hospital in Boston. He completed his residency in Combined Medicine Pediatrics Program at Detroit Medical Center and he was a chief resident of pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Michigan and subsequently did his fellowship in pediatric cardiology again at Children's Hospital in Michigan. He then completed an adult congenital heart disease fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital and Brigham Women's Hospital. His interests include transition of care, community health, and uh, heart failure. Um, on personal note, I know um, Amrut very, very well. He was a Medpist pediatric resident medicine pediatric resident, and uh, we did some continuity clinics together. Uh, he was a chief resident of pediatrics, and as a vice chair of education, I got to work with him very closely for our morning reports and board reviews, and he was always there uh, to help me uh, with discussions. Uh, he won the Best Teacher Award uh, for medical student as a resident, pediatric resident, or medpist resident. He was outstanding graduating resident uh, given to... Uh, residents who are graduating from Medpeace and Pediatric Program at Children's Hospital in Michigan. And he was a best teaching fellow for three years in a row, for three years of his uh, cardiology fellowship. Every single year, uh, he won the Teaching Fellow uh, Award. So, Amrut, uh, welcome, and we are looking for your presentation. The floor is yours. Thank you so much, Dr. Kamat, for that kind introduction. Thank you for all for taking the time this morning to listen to me. And so, as um, the title suggests, I'm going to be talking about transitioning patients with chronic medical conditions to pediatric, um, from pediatric to adult care. And so just to start out, these are the objectives for our talk. The first I want to do is to, to define transition medicine, um, just to go over what we mean by transitioning patients to adult care. And there are a few different definitions. And so that's why there's a few definitions I just wanted to share with you all. The other thing too I want to discuss is the challenges that patients and also providers face when discussing transitioning to adult medical care. And the last part of the presentation will be talking about some of the infrastructure and some of the methodology that we utilize to transition patients from pediatric to adult care. I know some of this will probably be reviewed. Some of you um, will already know this, and so bear with me if you already know some of this information. I just will, um, I have a few updated things that um, from some of the more recent guidelines. But, you know, when I, it's interesting when we think about transition, I think sometimes like when I take a step back, I think about it as more kind of like on a structural level, on like a kind of a facility level. But then when I actually think about the individual patients I work with, I realize how important transition is as a concept. And so I just would like to start out by sharing with you a few patient stories um, that kind of highlight the importance of having good transition policies in place. So the first one actually, um, I wish I could say this is the only patient I've seen like this. Actually, to be honest, like tetralogy of flow, it's a very unique condition in the sense that we actually do see a lot of gaps in care for these patients. But one that came to mind was a patient in his mid-30s who got lost to follow-up for about 15 years. And generally, just to give you a sense for tetralogy of flow patients, we generally try to follow them every year, either with a check-in or at least doing an echocardiogram just to make sure the squeeze of the heart um, works appropriately, make sure the valves aren't leaking. And so the patient didn't follow up because first um, um, they felt that they had would be cured by their condition once they'd gone to their teenage years and they felt very well. And the patient wasn't transitioned to adult care. And so this patient suddenly developed fluid overload, had cement lower extremity edema, loved trouble breathing on exertion, and was then found to have significant pulmonary regurgitation, biventricular dysfunction, as well as chronic kidney disease, which is somewhat related to all these things. And so it was a, a lesson that, you know, in the sense that if this patient had been fallen pretty yearly, we probably would have been able to catch some of this regurgitation and also the biventricular dysfunction, maybe able to prevent him from having to undergo 
the repeated hospital admissions for this condition. It was interesting. I could substitute these words. I can substitute tetralogy for, for Fontan and the age for 40s. And you actually have the similar case, actually. I had a Fontan patient in the, her mid-40s who was also lost a file for 20 years, uh, wasn't able to transition over to adult care, and then similarly presented with significant fluor overload and also had pretty severe diabetes with an ANC of 20. And so again, one of these cases kind of just highlight that with, with these patients that have very complex conditions, it's really important that you engage them into a transition process so they can follow up with adult care because if they get lost to follow up like this, you can have pretty significant complications. Moving away from cardiology, I just wanted to share one last case. Um, there was a patient I took care of as a resident who was a 20-year-old uh, man with uncontrolled type 1 diabetes. When he was being transitioned from his pediatric endocrinologist to the adult endocrinologist, his A1C was 11.6%. So it wasn't great, um, but the problem was that he was lost and fought for one and a half years. There was a lack of infrastructure in place to actually get him to the adult endocrinologist. And so there was a gap in care about one and a half years. And he finally was able to follow up with our medicine pediatric clinic. His A1C was 17%. And he actually ended up having also a few admissions related to this high A1Cs. And the point of this, again, you know, I'm going to be talking about some of the structures and more of like the higher level stuff. But I think it's also important, like when we think about transition, it always comes down to the individual patient level. And so these cases come to mind. I have plenty of cases. I think we all have cases that we think about thinking about pediatrics of patients who we try to get over to the adult side and just didn't work out and they have these outcomes altogether. And I think that's where the drive to change things and kind of engage in transition comes from is to help these outcomes based on what we see in these patients. And so to take a step back, you know, we're very fortunate, you know, in the sense that over the past like 50 years, you know, we have had so many medical advances in the sense that children who are dying of some of these conditions like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell, congenital heart disease in the 60s and 50s, they know we expect them to live full till in full adulthood. Just to give you some numbers, um, the cystic fibrosis life is something, this is a little bit older data, but in 1970, the expectancy was seven years old. In 2007, now it's 37 years old. Down syndrome, similar thing in 1983, the life expectancy was 25. Now we're going up to 55 years. In congenital heart disease, especially with the single ventricle population, you know, most of these patients actually, they didn't live past the neonatal infant, even like the young childhood period, just because we didn't have some of the surgeries we have now. Now with the Fontan procedure and other surgeries, it actually is expected they live in adulthood. I can tell you, I've actually seen some 50-year-old Fontan patients who are doing very, very well altogether. And so, you know, all this comes with a, some consequences altogether. It's, it's a wonderful and we're excited that we are able to make these vans and make these kids live into adulthood, but it presents a lot of challenges as well too, right? Because, you know, as pediatricians, we have to think about, well, we have all these now old, young adults, adolescents with these chronic medical conditions who will need lifelong care. We need to find the appropriate provider to send them to. The same that too on the adult side, using my adult hat, I have to think about these patients who weren't expected to live 20, 50 years ago, and now they're living into adulthood, and now they're developing all these long-term complications related to their, their underlying medical conditions, but also just kind of the regular adult stuff like diabetes, high blood pressure, and everything. And so a lot of the transition, I'm going to stress on this, you know, and it may be a little bit um, ad nauseum to some degree, but a lot of like the work with transition requires a collaborative effort between adult and pediatric physician so that we can make these appropriate transitions of care altogether. Because without collaboration and kind of putting the best of our minds together, we're not going to be able to have successful transition for these patients. And so just to give you some definitions, there's a lot of definitions for transitioning. And I personally just love this definition. It's a little bit older. It's about 20 years old. But this paper defined transition medicine as the deliberate coordinated process of moving a patient from pediatric-oriented healthcare to adult-oriented healthcare with the goal of optimizing the young adult's ability to assume adult roles and function. I highlighted two aspects of it. One was the deliberate coordinated process. Again, it goes back to the collaboration aspect of what I was mentioning, but also it talks about being very kind of structured and focused about transitioning as well too, and making it a part of healthcare for these patients, which is an important point. The other thing is the goal itself, actually. I think that's the goal that we all hopeful for our pediatric patients. You know, we take care of them. We want them to get to adult care and just live their lives normally and be a part of, be able to take care of themselves without any issues altogether. And that's the goal of transitioning as well, too. We want to be able to help them get to the point where they feel comfortable with their own health and being able to take care of their 
their healthcare. And so the other way to kind of break down like this transitioning definition is to think about in kind of two sort of structures. One is that we're preparing patients and their families to become independent regarding the management of their own health. What I mean by that is talking about, you know, I think we take some of these things for granted, like, you know, if we need to make a doctor's appointment, we give a phone call to our doctor. If we need to pick up scripts, we make a phone call to call the pharmacy. For some patients, actually, it's not as intuitive to do that based on a variety of different factors. And so as a part of transitioning, we try to help them gain those skill sets. So they're able to do that. The other thing that, um, what I'm going to talk about a lot more as the presentation goes on is part of it is also teaching families and um, patients how to navigate a quote-unquote adult-oriented healthcare system. And I think we all can probably appreciate that the way we approach patients on the pediatric side versus the adult side is quite different altogether. There's different cultural differences in the sense that how we approach like the management of patients and how we approach rounding and things like that. There's also logistic and also structural differences, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit altogether. But part of transitioning is actually preparing them for that. You're going to go from a pediatric facility to an adult facility that may operate in a very different way than what they're used to doing. And so I think most all of us generally recognize that transitioning is a very important concept. And so just to give some numbers all together, you know, about half a million adults, I think this data is a little bit older, I think it's about like 10 years old, but about half a million adults end up transitioning for pediatric to adult providers every single year, which is quite a, quite a bit of patients altogether. Um, I mentioned this before, you know, this age group of like 16 to 25, it's um, some patients just need that additional assistance with kind of managing their healthcare, getting used to some of their chronic conditions and everything. The other thing that with the 16 to 25, as many know, it's a very big period in terms of life events. People are graduating from high school, people may be going to college, people may be getting their full first jobs and everything, people may be moving out of their hometowns. And so with these changes come this chance of being lost to follow up altogether, not being able to follow up for multiple of these life events. And so it kind of just highlights that it's important for this age group to try to engage them in the transition process so they can get the best outcomes for their healthcare. Just to give you a sense of like some of the studies that have been done that have addressed um, these gaps in transition. One is from, from my institution, the Heart ACG study, which is a multi-center study looking at gaps in care for adult congenital heart disease patients. They found that 42% of patients had a greater than three-year gap in care when transitioning from pediatric to adult care. And as I mentioned before, with the two patients at the beginning, like these greater than three-year gaps can be quite significant altogether as you can miss some of these important early warning signs that may kind of predict worse outcomes altogether. And this number actually is pretty consistent. I think it's gotten better in the past 10 years. I think that people quote actually about 30% who get lost, but it's still a pretty significant number who get lost to care. In terms of readmissions, actually, there's been studies that show that this age group, this kind of transition period, is associated with a higher rate of sickle cell crisis and readmissions. And there's a few other disease associations. I think there's been some studies that show oh, even like heart failure patients have this readmission rate as well, too, um, in this age group. And finally, there's been just some general like meta-analysis that showed that this age group is also fraught with increased ER visits as well, too. And actually, in the absence of a transition program, patients who don't have are involved with it have a higher rate of going to the ER as well, too. The other thing, you know, I think the studies have shown that, you know, you, there are these gaps in cares. It's important to kind of address transitioning. In terms of how we're doing, um, there have been some studies that have kind of addressed this. And so the National Children of Survey, as some of you may know, is done every year. Um, for the 2019-2020 period, it was 70,000 household surveys over 50 states. And they looked actually at, to, um, they did, looked at a bunch of different things, but two of the outcomes were related to transitioning. And one of them was about transition readiness, and one was about whether they received counseling around transitioning. And I presented the graph about counseling around transitioning, and this was whether providers talked to patients about transitioning to adult care. And you can see only 23% discussed some sort of transitioning to adult care, and 77% did not discuss transitioning to adult care. And so it's we as providers do have a quite a bit of work to do actually to kind of address this gap altogether. In terms of transition readiness, um, there was one study that looked at the and the transition readiness, what they defined was where whether the patients felt comfortable going to adult care. From 2016 to 2020, that number increased from 15 to 19 percent. So what we have is one in four patients who are getting counseling from their providers regarding transitioning 
to adult care and one in five patients who feel comfortable transitioning to adult care. And so, you know, obviously our work is cut out for us clearly, and we have a lot of work to do as a profession to try to improve these outcomes so that our patients feel comfortable transitioning to adult care. This is just another slide um, just to highlight, and this is also a little bit older data, but it kind of nicely shows up how like, you lose patients over time. This actually is data from Quebec, um, and this is a pediatric cardiology pro um, um, practice. And essentially it just was showing how patients get lost to follow-up as they get older altogether. And by the time like you go from like six to 12 to 18 to 15, you already have lost about half your patient population. I will say for this like site, I think they have like some milder forms of congenital heart disease, like repaired atrial septal defects. So we don't necessarily need to follow as closely altogether, but nonetheless, you know, it just highlights that how easy actually it is to lose some of these patients that follow up and why it's important to try to engage these patients as much as possible to keep them within the system. And so just to kind of highlight the key points so far, like, you know, transition to health adult care is important. There have been studies that show that without transition to adult care, you can have increased hospitalizations and ER visits. And there clearly is, you know, some deficiencies in terms that we haven't been able to adequately transition patients um, with only a quarter of them receiving counseling and only a fifth of them feeling that they're ready to transition to adult providers. You know, one of the things, you know, I've been harping about, you know, the importance of transition, but obviously, you know, if, if transition was so easy to do, like everyone would be doing it, right? There actually are, you know, like, it's important to recognize there actually are some significant challenges to implementing transition programs. And so the way I think about these challenges, I kind of divide them between clinicians and the patient level. And so there's all the clinician levels. A lot of it is, you know, communication coordination between your adult side. And so, um, you know, transition, you need to transition to some place, right? Um, and if you don't have an adult provider who's willing to take the patient, then there's really no way to make a transition program. And I think some of the facilities, some places in the U.S., like we're very fortunate, there's very people who are very on the adults who are really willing to engage with the pediatric providers. But I can tell you there's other places where there just isn't that level of engagement altogether. And so even despite the best efforts, it's actually is kind of hard to actually make a very robust transition program. I talk about a lot about infrastructure for a transition program. And what I, what I mean by that is trying to develop a formalized transition program to help patients. And you know, it's not easy thing. it takes work altogether. It takes an investment in time from providers, it takes investment in trying to develop their resources and everything, and also developing a system to have the hand up to the adult providers as well too. And so that isn't an easy thing to do actually. And I recognize that as well too. I think that's some of the limitations that people have in terms of developing transition program is trying to get this time investment in terms of making this. The other thing too, which is a very valid fear is pediatric fears of transitioning to the adult program. And I can tell you, like, I understand this fear 100%. Like, definitely, especially in the congenital heart disease community, we've seen some pretty crazy things being done to our patients by adult cardiologists who don't have expertise in congenital heart disease in terms of cardiac catheterizations, where they're trying to put stents in random places, or people are trying to put pacemakers in patients who don't have, like, appropriate anatomy to put pacemakers in. And so this actually is a, a big limitation. If you don't feel comfortable with your adult colleagues, actually, and you don't feel like they'll do well, then you're less likely to transition to those. And I've actually seen this playing out in multiple different levels and for very, very valid reasons as well too. Um, in terms of, from the patient standpoint, I think the big thing is we all recognize is that, you know, a lot of our patients with chronic medical conditions, if you see their providers up until 18, 20, 21, and they're just used to seeing them, like the families get used to the clinics, the families get used to the providers, the nurses, the administrative assistants and everything, the physicians. But then you have this now pace with this process of going to a completely new group of primary care doctors, new group of specialists as well too. And so it takes a lot of effort and also it's a little bit jarring altogether. The other thing I've, I've mentioned this a few times, again, like the ability to like responsibly your care at age 18 to 21, it just, it varies from person to person. Actually, some people like, even like when they're 14, they know their medications, they know exactly every detail of their medical history, they're ready to go versus some people or even like 25, 26, I'll even say like 30 to 40 for some of our adults, like they have no clue what's going on altogether, which is not a bad thing actually, it's just, it's just how they kind of developed altogether psychosocially. Um, and so that can also present a challenge by itself to be like, hey, you need to transition, learn this new set of skills. It can cause some kind of consternation, also like some trouble as well too. The other thing too, I mentioned this earlier, like, you know, going from pediatric adult to care, like I will say there are different cultures altogether. And I put this quote here, I felt happy walking to this place. This is one of my, when I was a resident, one of my patients told me, this is a patient who had gone both, like had transitioned over to the adult care. And the patient was describing like, you know, like what, 
felt he felt when he went to a children's hospital and that's what he felt versus the adult hospital he didn't actually feel that way at all and i think it kind of it speaks to a few things in terms of culture and infrastructure and in terms of like you know pediatric medicine versus adult medicine you know pediatric medicine i feel like you know there is a sense of more nurturing more kind of like clinical medicine altogether you're trying to see the patients you're trying to do right for them you know, if the kids are, didn't have a good night, you'll let them sleep in, you'll round together on the team and examine them. Versus adult medicine, not that this is a, a bad thing altogether, I'm not saying that, but it's very structured altogether. Like there's checklists of things that we need to do. Like we need to do DVT prophylaxis checkbox. We need to order IV fluids checkbox and everything. We need to get our labs before rounds. We have to order them at 6 a.m. checkbox as well too. And so it can be, it's a little bit more cookie cut. There's not a lot of, um, I see it's a little bit more sterile to some degree in the sense that there's still care of the patients, but it's not as nurturing as we would see on the pediatric side. And so, again, if you lived your life going to a pediatric hospital and then had to go to an adult hospital, it can be a little bit drawing altogether. I mean, a little bit facetious for the next two slides, but the question is which one is a children's hospital? And you can probably tell like this one on the left is a children's hospital based on the color scheme, the fact that there's a playroom. And then this one right here is an adult hospital. So if you look at like a waiting room, obviously the colorful one here is the children's hospital and this is an adult hospital. Again, it's a little bit facetious, but I think actually it's still an important point altogether. Again, it goes back to what you're used to. Like if you're used to like, spending like 18 to 21 years of your life going to this right here, seeing bright, vibrant colors, seeing people like, you know, playrooms and things like that. And then you go to this or you're in the waiting room like this, it can make a, it, may, it makes a big difference also in terms of like your mental mass, especially when you first present to see the physicians. And, and, you know, actually it's interesting, like when you actually, I've asked patients about this and actually they brought this up as some of like the challenges to transition as well too, like kind of seeing like this different in how like, hospital design is and everything. I also like some hospital designs, they're not like this, you know, they're a little bit more sterile together. I just don't see like the nice like color schemes I see like with pediatric hospitals, but even like if it's a more sterile environment too, it's not the same as this kind of colorful friendly experience that you see in a pediatric facility. Um, the next few slides, you know, I didn't want to like talk just a ton about research altogether, but you know, I think it's important to look at the research altogether because the research has shown that transitioning can be effective and very effective to some degree. And so I'm just going to highlight a few papers here um, that I think kind of kind of show the breadth of the research. There's actually been a few more that have been published altogether. There's been some meta-analysis, but I really like these ones because they kind of address like different illnesses and different conditions. Um, the first one is just um, this was one for adolescents with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and so. Um, I would say like arthritis like was has been really good like the rheumatology in, in sense that they've they actually did some of the initial like transition work actually published initial transition papers showing that transition was affected and so this one obviously no it's like 16 years old but I still think it's an important one this one they developed a program where they worked with patients to try to get some of the skill sets I was talking about and they actually found that the patients who underwent the transition program had a pretty significant improvement in their health-related quality of life um, once they underwent the program altogether. This one is, from, is a, a Canadian paper um, talking about transitioning patients from um, kidney transplantations from pediatric to adult care in a very similar fashion about kind of building them um, building them up in terms of like talking them about what sort of things they need to expect to do when they go to adult care. And the interesting thing, like they were kind of like clinical outcomes, but also sort of like adherence outcomes as well too. And what they found was that the transition group had less missed clinic visits. So they were able to show up to more of their clinic visits. And they also had improved medication adherence versus the control group that didn't undergo like this transition clinic altogether. They also found that there was a significant difference in terms of the rate of decrease in the mean um, GFR was different um, in the transition group. It was better in the transition group versus the control group as well too. So some also improvement in some clinical outcomes as well too. Going to diabetes action. I think for this one actually it was interesting. I think they actually had the adult provider go to the pediatric clinic to kind of form a bridge. They knew like the adult provider and everything. But for this like program, this transition program, they found that there was a lower A1C and also less incidence of hypoglycemia for the patients who underwent the transition group versus the control group. And just the last paper I just want to highlight here was this patient um, program about um, about sickle cell for sickle cell patients. Actually, the transition program, but actually with the transition program, they had a pretty significant number of patients who were able to follow up. Seventy about three quarters of the patients were able to transition and see an adult provider within three months, versus 33% of the patients who weren't able to. Um, there's a lot more papers that are.
Amruti, you're muted. I think you muted yourself. Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry, can you see my slides still? Yeah, we can see your slides. Yeah. Oh, perfect. So going back to what I was thinking, um, this study was very successful, actually. 74% of the patients were able to follow up for three months, and then 33% who weren't part of this study or not, um, did not follow up. And so again, the, the majority of the literature suggests that, you know, transition programs can be very, very effective altogether in terms of improving adherence, patient follow-up, and also improving clinical outcomes as well too. And so again, key points from like the past few slides, there are multiple challenges, which are very realistic challenges in terms of transitioning patients from pediatrics to adult care. But based on the research and the literature, there can be safe transition actually um, and which leads to improved outcomes um, for these patients as well, too, with the appropriate resources. And so for the last part of the presentation, I'm actually going to go into some of the different structures and different things you have utilized to help with transition. And just to start, uh, I like this slide. This actually is from a, a recent paper. Um, it was a review article talking about transition from pediatric to adult care. They talked about things that favor a smooth transition. Actually, I'm going to go over some of these things in more detail, but I think one of the big things from this first one you can see is talking about transition at appropriate time. We're going to talk a lot about this because one of the issues that you sometimes see is that we talk about transition way too late when they're about to transition over to the adult side and you're playing a lot of catch up altogether. The other thing that this slide highlights too is that there's a lot of engagement with multiple practitioners, including primary care physicians, specialists, nursing staff to try to make this whole, you know, it takes a team to do all this transition work as well too. And so, you know, to take a step, you know, talking about transition, again, this is a little bit of a facetious question too, but in terms of who should be transitioned, everyone essentially should be transitioned over. And so I'm gonna to refer to this AP policy statement, which was initially published in 2011, but it was updated in 2018. But um, essentially what they say is that transition planning should be a standard part of providing care for all youth and young adults. And each patient should have individualized transition plan regarding his or her specific healthcare needs. I highlighted the all part of it, but also I highlighted the individualized transition plan because I think the big thing about transition, this is a big take home point is that transition has to be individualized based on the patient. Everyone is so different in terms of where they're at, in terms of thinking about going to adult care that you need to make to work with them to develop the transition program as well. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, Everyone has, you know, I will say like in terms of transition, everyone thinks about it a little bit differently. I'm going to actually show you what how the AAP organizes it. This is how I personally think about it, which may be different than how some other people think about transition. But I think about the before, during, and after the transfer of care. And so before the transfer of care, as I've talked about before, a lot of it's trying to help patients become independent regarding multiple things. And so I mentioned some of these things before, taking medications independently, speaking to physicians, making appointments, even talking about insurance as well too. One of the big things that we actually see actually for adults who transition is that they actually for, don't know how to manage their healthcare insurance. And we actually have lost a few, patients have lost their healthcare insurance and have had to play catch up altogether. So it's important. And as I mentioned before, a lot of the before transfers trying to pre prepare patients to be, go for an adult oriented quote unquote healthcare system, getting used to the adult culture as well too. During your transfer of care, a lot of it is the collaboration with the adult side so that you have an appropriate handoff to the adult side so that you can have very minimal loss of follow-up so they can follow up within a couple of months or whatever the period of follow-up that is needed for these patients. And then after the transfer of the care aspect it's important to make sure that these patients continue to follow up with their providers to make sure they don't get frustrated or get disillusioned with going to the adult providers and just get loss of follow-up altogether. And of course, it's expected, you know, throughout the process, the important thing is to try to address any fears or concerns that families may have or their caregivers may have regarding the transition process, because obviously some things are going to come up while you make this process go on. Again, I, I know I'm saying this a lot, but again, like, you know, the big take home point is that, you know, collaboration among transition and individualization among transition are very, very important, actually. And so I think you know, pediatricians, we have this unique perspective in the sense that we know the patients throughout their lives. Actually, we know what their interests are. We know their schooling. We know like their favorite color and everything, what stickers they like. We know a lot of detail about the patients altogether. So we have that unique perspective when you transition over to it. The adult 
providers, they don't have that perspective altogether, but they do add actually insight because they know about some of the things that they may expect later on in life when they're 40 or 50, they kind of know some of the stuff to look out for. And so that collaboration is very essential to make transition programs work. Without it, um, it becomes very, very, very difficult. I like this. Um, I'm just going to briefly talk about this. Like, this is actually from the AP guidelines themselves um, from 2018, the transition guidelines. The thing I really like about it is that they actually have like an adult provider section, actually. And we're going to go over these are like their six steps for transition writing. So I'm going to go over this in the next slide. But for each of these steps, actually, for a pediatric versus adult provider, they actually give guidance about how you approach that step. And so for the adult providers, it's just for people who like an adult provider who say it may have like a 16 year old who transitioned over to them. But I really like how they kind of divide it this way. And so I encourage, you know, if you have a chance to look through this table and the guidelines and everything, we will definitely will go over these six steps um, in terms of transition. Um, so now going into like when you assess for transition readiness. And so the AP guidelines um, in 2011, again, they were reinforced in 2018. They recommend actually transitioning, um, talking not, not transitioning, but talking about transition at age 12. And this is not saying that you're going to be like, hey, at age 13, you're going to go to the adult provider. This is just assessing and talking about the transitioning policy at age 12, actually, just to get them used to it. Because again, the, the issue that sometimes we see is that patients are at age like 18 to 21, they get transitional to adult care, they start the transition talk then, and that's too little time over to assess transition readiness altogether. And so that's why they recommend at least starting the conversation, not necessarily to doing all the transition stuff then, but this is starting the conversation just to get a sense to see where the patient is and where the families are regarding transition readiness altogether. Um, in terms of actually implementing a transition policy itself, actually, the AP says that age 14, a formal transition transition plan should be in place. And they actually recommend putting a plan in like the, the electronic medical record um, or whatever medical records. And when they talk about the plan itself, it, it talks about assessing the readiness of this, the patient and also the discussions you have with the family of the patient and the patient itself regarding transitioning itself. And so I think it's good to talk about, this is actually is the timeline that they have in the, in, the, um, in the AP guidelines itself, actually. And so the first stage that they have is stage one, which is the transition policy. And this is where you discuss like around age 12, um, starting at age 12, but even you know up to age 14, about what is your policy? Like, when do you expect them to go to adult care? Like, what do you expect? Like, them to be able to do as an adult in terms of things like in terms of like calling like your physician, calling pharmacies and things like that. I will say stages two, three, and four, they all kind of occur simultaneously, but just to go through this thing, two is actually tracking their progress in terms of how they're able to transition. And it kind of goes hand in hand with transition readiness, which we're going to talk about in the next couple of slides, like assessing essentially at every visit, are they ready to transition over? Like what things are they not able to do? What things are they doing very, very well? The last kind of part of this is more closer to like when they transition over. This is the transition planning phase. This is where you develop a medical summary and you work with your adult colleagues to be like, hey, this patient, we're getting ready to transition over to adult care. Here's the information. Like, what do you think is a limitation for you? And you are collaborating with them to kind of prepare that. Five is the transition to adult care. This is that phase where you get them over to the adult practice. And then six actually is where you get the feedback from the patients about how did the transition go? What went well? What could have been done better? And you make sure that they're able to still follow up with their physician. They don't get lost of follow up altogether. Um, going to assessing for transition, I think that's you know always a question, you know, how do you assess for transition rise? What do we mean by that? There's a lot of different ways. Actually, if you like type in like transition readiness on Google, you'll get a lot of different things. And so like the general thing that people do, like there's a lot of questionnaires and a lot of them have been validated um, altogether. And these all do different things about assessing for patients' abilities to do certain self-care sort of things, talk about, talk about their medical conditions, know about their healthcare and everything. And um, there also are some very disease-specific ones. We, I know there's a congenital heart disease one that's come out. I think there's a few other subspecialty ones that come up, has come up as well too. They essentially do all the same things actually. They all kind of assess to see what ability you're able to do. And so I put this example, this one hasn't been valid. This is one I had created. Um, one of the things that, again, going to the individualization of transition, actually, one of the things I found like with some of these like other surveys like that were available, it just didn't work out like in our patient population. They were too long. They were too like kind of laborious to kind of fill out and everything. And so we had created some like simpler ones altogether, but the questions are very similar regardless of which survey you see. But essentially we had broken it down to three categories, like health awareness, self-care, communication, um, 
for the health awareness, actually, there was questions about knowing the medical history, knowing what you need to do if you felt sick. I talked a lot about insurance, actually, because that was one of the things I was seeing a lot was people losing their insurance and knowing how to apply for it. And then there was some stuff about self-care, about medications, getting knowing where to get them filled, getting transportation to doctor's appointments, and just communication as well. Again, I'm not, you know, I agree this one. I'm not saying any of these surveys are wrong by themselves. They actually are used quite a bit. Actually, there's a lot of facilities that use these surveys altogether. A lot of it, again, is just kind of um, adapting based on your patient as well, which survey is better for them altogether. Um, and for the, we use this one, I use this one in actually my residency because I just felt it was better altogether uh, for our, our patient population. The other thing too, actually, um, kind of flipping this, there actually are these transition timelines as well too, which I think sometimes people like these better than the surveys because they're a little bit more visual together. And so this is one of them actually, there is a on track also like, and so there is like a, a survey as well too, but this is actually gives a timeline, a sense of sort of like developmental quote unquote milestones that they expect patients to have. And so for example, at age 16, um, there is a talk about making a list of all medications. This one actually I liked as well too, because it also kind of combines sort of like school related stuff and career related stuff as well too. And so there are some really, really nice ones like this. And you know, each, you know, they're institutional based, they're like also facility based, each of them have a different things. But essentially they talk about very similar things. They talk about like when you should start learning, like thinking about transitioning or some of the things that you think about. We had created one in Detroit. It's not obviously as pretty as the one I just showed you as well too. Um, but the way, again, again, this goes back to like how I was thinking about transition, how I was working with my patients. Um, I thought about general transition goals, but also I thought about very specific illness goals. And so this one was very specific to sickle cell. The other thing too, again, going to the individualization process too, like, you know, I knew like, you know, you know, there are different like buckets of ages as you saw here, like there's age 12 to 3, 15, 14. You know, one of the things that I recognize, and I think a lot of people recognize, like when thinking about transition, like there really is not like a fixed age altogether. And so it's sometimes helpful to think about age ranges um, when you're thinking about transition in terms of goals. And so one of, so that's why we have like this kind of like 12 to 15, 15, 18, 18 to 21. But otherwise, everything else is pretty similar altogether about what we have, sort of terms of expectations and and one of the things that like what we used to do with this time, like some people like the visual representation. So we actually just would check off each of these things. And the idea was that if they were able to like say like at age 12 to 15, if they were able to say take their medications by themselves, but they didn't know about their medical information, we'd be like, hey, it's the next visit. We have an expectation that we would you would know about your medical conditions. And so we kind of give them a little bit of quote unquote homework by the next visit we would have, like we would talk a little bit more about that. And throughout that process, you know, as they went through like each of these visits, they would learn a little bit more altogether. So they felt more prepared by the time they were 18 to 21. You know, the one thing as a part of this too, which is important, which um, I think Lava has recognized that when you transition, you're not just transitioning the patient itself, you're also transitioning their families and their caregivers as well too. And it's really important, you know, especially for patients who aren't able to speak for themselves, patients like with cerebral palsy and developmental delay, who have guardians, it's important to engage the families um, in this true transition process. The other kind of population I think about too, like there's these, you know, um, parents who have and guardians who have the best intentions possible, but they're heavily involved with their um their their child's um, healthcare, and sometimes they don't let them do some of the things that they need to do. They want to do everything for them, which is and they come from the best intentions possible, but sometimes you need to work with them to let them have their child do some of these things as well too. And so, you know, I bring this up as well, because I there's I remember a lot of like, especially for the patients who are able to speak for themselves, it, again, going from like the PX to the outside, it, it's, it's, it can be very jarring. I remember I had a, uh, I think about a 19 year old that had severe autism who came in with pancreatitis on first admission to the adult side. We were in the county hospital. Patient had been seen at the children's hospital their whole life. I was in this room in this like adult ER, you know, county ER. It was very busy. People were yelling and things like that. And it was just overwhelming. The patient was growing in pain. And then the mother just broke down in the middle of the ER. Just was just overwhelming sensation just being there all together. And I think it's, and, you know, and I always say like, it's hard to prepare parents for that, hard to prepare, prepare caregivers for that. But I think it's important that we kind of bring up some of these things actually, just so they're aware that these things can happen. It just is a different system altogether. And so, I think that's an important part, which I'm recognizing too, is that when I'm doing transitioning, I always have to, you know, talk to you, engage the families as well. It's just not just about engaging the, the patient itself, it's also about engaging the families as well too.
I just want to highlight um there is um this great website. I think some of you probably know this. It's, it's called Got Transition. Actually, they have a lot of great resources. Actually, you know, it's just gottransition.org. If you Google it or just like type it in, they have lots of resources for families and providers. They also have a lot of like the research as well too. The thing I really like about it is that they have their own timeline as well, which is very similar to what they show. They have their own like transition timeline. The other thing that, you know, I don't think about as much, I think we all do like transition from the goodness of our hearts, right? We don't think about like, you know, the time, the financial stuff. But the one thing that was really interesting that they have on the Got Transition website is that they actually talk about billing as well too, how you can bill for your time. Because as you know, like, you know, transition is another extra thing. We have so many things like each visit, we have all these things that we need to check off to make sure that think kids are being right with to make sure their milestones are right make sure like all their like things are immunizations are updated and everything and so there's a lot of things to do in a short visit and you know the nice thing about like this website actually they talk about ways that actually you can kind of make like transition visits and kind of build for it and everything which um can be very difficult altogether in terms of insurance wise so again i highly encourage you like you know this is a great resource like for anyone who is interested in transition they have a lot of really fascinating things there I just, you know, I wanted just to give a case actually to kind of give an idea of how I approach um, transition. It's a, it's a pretty simple case altogether, but I just wanted to go over some of the things I highlight. And again, I want to say again, like everyone approaches transition differently. And again, it's, as I mentioned, it's a very individualized process for the patient, but also I think to some degree it's for the provider as well too. And so I just will give you my kind of thought about how I approach it. Again, like you, know, if you ask someone else, they may be different altogether, but you know, the patient I think about, it's actually funny, this is me actually, like I had moderate persistent asthma. And so this um, is a 13 year old that had Flovent, was on, um, had well control on Flovent, single layer and albuterol. I will say actually, you know, as a 13 year old, I was like a brat, like I had no, like, if you had told me to transition, I would have no clue what's going. And even like, when I was 18 to 19, like I had no clue what I was doing and everything. But in terms of like, you know, things about transitioning, um, you know, what, you know, the question is, you know, what would you think about for this patient, like what sort of things that we consider about transitioning and everything. And so, you know, the patient is 13. So like the first thing is to kind of discuss the transition policy, right? You know, what the expectations are for transition, actually not necessarily be like, hey, you need to go like to the adult care like at age 14, but more like, you know, hey, like, you know, our policy, if this is the policy is that, you know, at age 18, we expect you to do X, Y, and Z. We expect you by age 21 to see an adult provider. And then after you kind of establish that policy, you assess the transition readiness. And I will say like, you know, Again, um, as a 13 year old, I had no clue. You know, I had some idea, like I was able to take my medications, but my understanding of asthma, like was pretty limited altogether. And so I met patients with asthma at age 13 who know everything. They know like what causes it. They know how to take their medications. They're like, they tell their parents, I need to go to the ER for this. Like I had no clue as a 13 year old for that. But that's why we assess transition readiness, right? Like we want to know about what their level of ability is actually, you know, if they're at a level what which is above what we expect or below what they expect and everything. And then, you know, again, I do this, I always think about like general like transition stuff. Cause I think the general principles are applicable across all kind of illnesses and all like chronic medical conditions. But then I also think about the very specific disease um, related ones as well too. And so the one thing that I always talk about is talking about the doctor one-on-one -on -one regarding health problems, which again, it varies from patient to patient. Actually, some patients, they really engage with you and have it. Other people, they're looking to their parents to be like, hey, like, I don't know the answer to this question. Can you like tell the answer and everything? Um, the other thing are the things I talked about before, making doctor appointments, medications when they have, their, have them repealed, insurance. I'm sorry, I know I talk a lot about insurance. It's a very important thing, actually. It can be a pretty big problem. And understanding like their full medical history as well, too. Then in terms of asthma specific discussions, I talk them about when to can take their control inhalers and when to take rescue inhalers, um, which is, you know, what we expect. And then also when to know to go to the ED. The other thing too is about taking the medications without reminders and everything too, which is, you know, is a pretty, you know, applicable thing across the board. Again, you know, this is the assessment itself, but in terms of actually implementation, right, what I usually start with actually is the more general stuff actually. So if they're like, say like there was a patient who just doesn't know any of this at all, which was me actually at age 13, I had no clue what was going on. I would actually would start with this one right here actually, because it's good to have that kind of general background about like what your medic medical history is and everything. And then kind of work into these. And so like for the 13, like for the 13 year old here, like so me at 13, you may start with talking about like, hey, I'm right, like, you know, this is your medical history actually, you know, this is like, you know, how you, this is why you have, take these inhalers, you have asthma, asthma does this to you actually, this is why you have trouble breathing. But once I got familiar with that, maybe at the next visit at age 14, I'd be like, okay, I'm right, you understand this, let's talk to you 
how you get your doctor appointments and things like that. You know, for the next visit, I want you to work with your mom and dad and give them a call, call the doctor's office while they're there so you know how to make the appointments and everything. And so that as time goes on, you kind of give them more responsibility so they're able to do things by the time they turn 18 and everything. And in terms of like, you know, that what I just talked about was on an individual level, at a more higher level, in terms of like a kind of like structural level, actually, there are models for transition program. It, it varies like program to program. I can say that there's a wide variety based on the institution funding and the input. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, again, collaboration is key, actually, but just based on like a lot of that, actually, is time itself. I think that's one of the biggest factors I found is that making the time to sit down like together, being like, hey, like, you know, adult provider, pediatric brothers come together, figure out a transition plan and work together. That's the hardest part altogether. And, you know, there are some, some facilities who, um, they just don't get good buy-in from the adults where they're like, you know what, we're just going to do all the transitioning within here. And there are some models for congenital heart disease facilities where um, the, all the adult congenital providers are within the children's hospital itself and they make it work all together. They get for adults who are mid to the children's hospital, they would get med peace providers to come over and take care of them and give input. And actually that was the model in my residency. Um, we would do that. We would admit adult congenital patients to the pediatric hospital and we would have med peace providers actually help assist with their care and everything for some things that were beyond like the congenital heart disease, like, you know, managing of the diabetes or like COPD and things like that. Um, in terms of like, you know, thinking about getting the monster transition program, I'm going to talk about transition clinics for the last slide of the presentation, but there are some other different ways to think about it as well too. Like one thing that people do like, you know, are these like these questionnaires I mentioned as well too, but there are different ways to kind of approach them. You know, they're actually, you know, with the pandemic, there's been a lot of kind of renewed interest in virtual visits. And so some programs actually are doing kind of transition virtual visits where the, the patients outside of their clinic visit will meet with like a nurse provider, a nurse practitioner or a physician or a nurse and just kind of go over like the transition survey and some of the responses and get some counseling that way. And one of the nice things it, it does is that sometimes it kind of decongests from the visit because at a clinic visit, there's always so much to do already that you know adding transition may add like another 10 to 15 minutes when you have a full clinic that adds up like for the whole day. And so that kind of can help all together. Sometimes actually people will do iPads as well too in the waiting room. They will have them fill out the questionnaire while they're waiting and then they'll review them as well too. The other thing in terms of like the transition over to adult care, there are a lot of different ways to do it. You know, the transfer summary is a very common thing, sending us a summary of all the things to the adult provider. But other people will go further. I think I mentioned before, sometimes adult providers will come over to the pediatric clinic and actually meet them, the patients there so that they can get like at least a face to the name actually so that they feel more comfortable and the nice thing about that is that sometimes having those adult providers there you're kind of on their home turf right the, they get to meet the patient on like the like the patient gets to meet the prior on the children's side where they feel the most comfortable and the model has worked actually quite a bit um pretty well too the other thing that people do actually is they actually if there's time actually they will sit like adult and pediatric providers will sit together every couple of months and review all the patients that are transitioning over and so it's nice in that sense as well too, because then they can sit down, discuss each of the patients, go over any like questions, concerns, go over the scheduling as well too, and it works out really nicely that way. Um, the other thing too is that some programs have implemented just kind of like peer-to-peer -peer discussions like about transitioning as well too, like some like youth focus groups as well too, which worked well. In terms of like transfer of care, like um, there was two things I like, just kind of things I've seen in the literature. One is like quote unquote transition party where again, similarly a bunch of, patients who are transitioning over to the adult care get together with the adult provider and the pediatric provider and they essentially just have a discussion actually they have like you know some like food they have like talk about transitioning and everything and that actually has worked well I think actually the sickle cell um, paper I mentioned had done some sort of model of that the other thing too is actually touring the adult side it is helpful as well too actually and there have been some studies that show that if you actually go over and take the patients there just so they know like here's the clinic this is the person you're going to meet when you come to the front door and everything people will find that very helpful as well too. Again, there's really not a right or wrong way, actually. It just, again, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on your patients. You know, again, transitions an individualized process, but also develop, depends on what you have in terms of resources and time as well too. I like to mention a transitional medicine clinic, um, which is it's really, it's a really cool concept altogether, but essentially it's a medical home 
for patients with chronic medical conditions. And it serves kind of like as an intermediary, actually. Like if you're going from like your pediatric, say you're a, a congenital heart disease patient, you have a primary pediatrician, a congenital heart disease specialist. What you do actually is you transition your primary care to this transitional medicine clinic while still seeing your, your primary cardiologist as well too. And the goal of the transition medicine clinic actually is to get them, get you ready to get over to the adult side. And so you still see your these transition medicine specialists here. And eventually once you feel more comfortable, they get you over to adult care altogether. And so, and you transition your adult cardiologist. And usually a lot of these um, clinics are staffed by med peds physicians. So they kind of have a sense of, you know, the medicine and the adults. So they have connections on the adult side. So if you have like especially concern, they can connect you to the appropriate specialists as well too. A lot of times they're also are multidisciplinary too. They have social workers, nurses, psychologists, and everything. Um, there are model, there's some really good models here actually. Like these are all from like different med peds program. And where I was in Detroit, we also had a similar model, which we didn't have as as much support altogether, but it worked in a very very similar fashion altogether. If you don't have a transition clinic, actually, a lot of times primary care clinics serve this role altogether. They they do everything that you these transition clinics do. This is just nice in the sense that sometimes you can get some additional resources to help your patient transition over to. And so just to finish up, you know, the goal of transition medicine, we want to ensure a smooth transition between a pediatric and adult providers while helping young adults and adolescents manage their um, health independently. Transition readiness is a very individualized process, but you know, assessment of transition readiness should start at age 12. And again, the big two words I just to mention, it's um, coordination and individualization. Like, you know, you coordinate with your adult colleagues, you collaborate with your adult colleagues to make this process. And the process transition should be individualized altogether. But thank you for taking the time to listen. Thanks for listening to that fascinating Grand Rounds talk. Don't forget to click on the link. See you next week. Thanks for listening.